This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Season of Eastertide is the 50-day season between Easter and Pentecost Sunday. It's a 50-day period, including those two days, between the day that our Lord was resurrected and the day that the Spirit fell that we call the day of Pentecost. So there's this 50-day period, eight Sundays actually. The first Sunday is Easter, the eighth Sunday is Pentecost. The first seven Sundays of those eight are called the seven Sundays of Easter. You realize today is the third Easter in terms of the way the calendar teaches the church. We are in the, the third Easter today. Well, this is the season when we focus on the lessons taught by the risen Christ between his resurrection and between uh, the establishment of the church at Pentecost. This year, uh, we're using a guiding text from the, from the evangelist that we know as the Gospel of Luke. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're using Luke's text. And I want to say this about Luke's text. It's very important. This Eastertide series is about Scripture, so let me say some things along the way for you to tuck away that are very important. Luke's Gospel self-describes in its introduction this way. Important. Luke's Gospel said, because many people have tried to write this story, you see, the four Gospels we know weren't the only people writing this story. As a matter of fact, they used many sources that we don't have any access to now except that the fact that they used them. But Luke said a lot of people have written this story, but he said, I have purposed to give an orderly account. And that says something. The author of Luke's Gospel, we traditionally have said that was Luke, the physician that traveled with Paul. That's that's our best educated guess from the earliest days, but we don't know. The gospel doesn't tell us who wrote it. But say it was Luke. The author of Luke said, I want to give an orderly account, and I want to develop that orderly account through a process, this is his quote, of investigating everything carefully. So, this author decided to investigate everything carefully and then do his own synopsis of the life of Jesus. These are all quotes. He says, the way that I'm going to do this because I was, I, I was not there. So the author of Luke's Gospel was not there. But he said, I'm going to do this through interviewing, quote, those who were eyewitnesses. Two things. They were eyewitnesses and they were servants of, listen to this, of the word. Luke said, what I'm writing is an orderly account that has been told to me about the word. What's the word? He said the word was something that there was a group of people, J.D., who were eyewitnesses to. These eyewitnesses were so impacted by what he calls the word that they became servants of that word. Now, that word wasn't what was written down. That word was the living testimony of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we often point out that John's gospel begins that way. John's gospel says, in the beginning, uses the same word, the Greek word logos. To translate logos into modern parlance, it's not the easiest thing, but 
when we're, when we're talking about they were eyewitnesses of the word, they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, of the logos, they were eyewitnesses and servants of the ultimate statement of God, the plan of God, a plan and a blueprint so deeply embedded in God that it could best be described as the essence of God, the spirit of God, some would even say. This is the statement, the plan, the mind, the counsel, the ultimate essence of God. And Luke said some people saw that and they were so moved by it that they become servants of that word and now I'm interviewing them and giving an orderly account of all that. That's Luke's gospel. That's what the New Testament scripture is. Well, John said it this way in the very next gospel. John said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God this is where we get down to this issue of essence. And the word was God. It was so deeply a part of him. The sisters of mercy were with Mother Teresa and that ministry was Mother Teresa. It was the living witness of everything she essentially was. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word with is not close enough. The word was God. And then John says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Doesn't say the word was immediately written down. That's not the point of the word. The word was the living witness of Jesus Christ that we have witnessed with our eyes and many of us have witnessed with our hearts. Luke says, I'm gonna give an orderly account of the word. This is one of the reasons that we have taken in Protestant years, we have taken especially to calling the scripture the word of God. Many of you just call it the word. Well, I, I wanna tell you that's not unfounded. That comes out of this issue that what we see in scripture is not the capturing, but we see depicted here the essence of Jesus. We, we not only could experience it, but we felt the need to share it. Anybody who experiences Jesus feels a need to share that. When you find something good, you wanna share it. And one of the ways that we shared that was through a written text. So I wanna say this about the text. To the extent that Luke's orderly account, Luke didn't call his book the word. Luke called his book an orderly account done by careful investigation. To the extent that Luke's orderly account captured the life of Jesus and thus the heart of God, it becomes the word of life for us. So that's where that's come from. The word of life. That's why a lot of people have asked me, why is the Bible not called the words of God? Well, that, that's good. You're picking up on something. Words, not just phonetic representations out of the mouth. It's not, the Bible's not the words of God. That's where some of these ideas like plenary verbal dictation theory came from where people felt like that God so superintended the writers that he told them exactly every word to write. Uh, we, we've long since, most have moved past that idea. Scripture never said it was the words of God, it said it was an orderly account of the word who was the living person of Jesus. So scripture could best be defined as the words of men and the word of God. How you like that? Scripture is the words of men and the word of God. And there's a distinction between the two, but they come together as they bring Jesus to us. Well, when we're reading Luke's careful account of the word, 
the life of Jesus, the first Easter tide. We find that it's contained in Luke 24 and Acts 1 and 2. That 50-day period is the last chapter of Luke and the first two chapters of Acts. And, and please know this, when you're reading through the Bible and you read the book of Luke, don't read John next, read Acts next. Luke and Acts were written by the same author and they were written to go together. That's why Acts 1 begins with the former treatise I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do until he was caught up into the heavens. And it picks up right there and it takes us through the last 10 days of Eastertide while the people tarried uh, before the Holy Spirit fell. So walking through Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel tells us expressly that Jesus did some very important things when he rose up from the grave. This is Eastertide. What did Jesus do when he got out of the grave? The Bible tells us the first thing that Jesus did, and we talked about this last week, but I want to remind you, first service, I talked about it more. The Bible says the first thing that Jesus did was he picked some people to show himself to, to appear to. And it's incredibly interesting. You think Jesus arbitrarily picked some people? You think Jesus did it with intention or arbitrariness? I think Jesus probably did it with intention. To that end, Carol, the first people that he picked to show himself to. I mean, he had Peter and James and John to select from, didn't he? He, he could, if it would have been me, I would have showed up on Caesar's doorstep and said, what do you got to say for yourself now, right? I mean, he wasn't arbitrary. But scripture not only teaches us things in the words, it teaches us many things that are held in the story itself. You got to read the essence of the story. Jesus doesn't always come in the front door. Sometimes Jesus comes at the thing from a different direction. And the Bible says he's think, God's thinking to himself, I'm going to appear. Who do I appear to? Caesar, Pilate, Herod, James, Peter, John, the Sanhedrin. That, that, again, show up before the Sanhedrin, stick out your hands and say, hello, fellows. Right? He appears to Mary Magdalene. She may have been the lady who was called a person of disrepute. And she came to Jesus so overwhelmed that in the presence of Pharisees, she let her hair down. And as she was trying to pour perfume on his feet, the Bible said she just couldn't quit crying. And her tears washed his feet. And she took her hair and she wiped his feet. And the Pharisees said, my, my, my. Scripture says that for sure, she was possessed of seven demons. I don't know what that looked like in the first century. I see what it looks like in the 21st century. She was possessed and broken and Jesus delivered her. And from that time, she never quit following him. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and he appeared to another Mary, the mother of James and Salome, and he appeared to a woman named Joanna that we don't know much about. And Luke even says, Luke goes so far. See, Matthew said it was two women. Luke says it was a bunch of women. Why? Because Luke interviewed a lot of people. And Luke says there were also women that had followed him down from Galilee to the cross. Luke 23 begins by saying, watch this, when he was crucified, these women were there. All the apostles except John were gone and these women were there and they were watching him crucified. And when Joseph and Nicodemus took him off of the cross and 
put his body in a white linen wrap, threw it over their shoulders and struggled away from that hill to bury him. The Bible says this group of women, did you know that? This group of women followed them out to the tomb and they watched their Lord laid dead in a tomb and when they saw that he was secure there, that group of women went back. Nothing told of the apostles. I don't know where the big A apostles are, but these women went back to the house and immediately began to prepare ointment and spices. You're putting the story together now? They began to prepare all of that stuff and as they were preparing the sunset, it was Sabbath and because they were Jews and their Lord was a Jew, they stopped working and they suspended all work until the Sabbath was over and that night when the Sabbath was over, they continued their work and they got up the next morning and went out to the grave. And Jesus could have picked anybody and he picked them. That's the first thing that Jesus did when he got up out of the grave. He made a statement about the glass ceiling that women had faced for a long time and he made a statement about the glass ceiling that women face even in the church today. He made a statement about how he feels how he feels about women. He told them to go tell, they went and told the apostles, the big A apostles and the big A apostles winked at one another and said, you know how silly women are? And they didn't believe them. You wanna find out how Jesus feels about women? You can read 1 Timothy and Paul's edict on women in the church. You can read 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. You also need to read the resurrection story to see how Jesus feels about women apostles being sent to proclaim his message. He doesn't always put things just in the words. Sometimes Stanley puts things in the story. The second thing he did, and this is kind of our focus this Easter tide, and I'll get as far as I can today, and we'll just stop and pick up here the next week, but this is important stuff for us. For all of you who are estranged from Scripture, you don't know how to read it, you're confused by all the different doctrines in the church and all the ways the church is divided, and you don't know where to find authority, how to find inspiration, you don't know how to read the text. There's good news in the Eastertide story because the second thing Jesus did was he took the church back to the Bible. And the story goes like this. Two of his followers on the road from Jerusalem, they were leaving Jerusalem. One of them was named Cleopas. How about that for a name, Cleopas? I didn't say Cletus, we got some Cletuses, but Cleopas was on his way from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, seven miles away, and the Bible says that he was with another disciple of Jesus, and Jesus appeared to them. And it was in that meeting that Jesus did something that I want us to look at, and I'm telling you, if you look at it and you walk this out with me for the next few weeks, I do believe that some things can change in your life in relationship to Scripture and even in relationship to God. There are some lessons here that are transformative. It's interesting to me, it's important to me, and I think it's even telling, at least to me, that when Jesus appeared to the fellows on the road to Emmaus, he was not immediately recognized by them. The Bible doesn't say that he showed up to these two guys and they said, there you are, and it doesn't even say that he showed up and said, here I am. No hands extended, no robe pulled back, the Bible says that he appeared to them and they didn't know who he was. Look at this in uh, verse 13 through 16. Luke 24, verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. If you ever have a tendency to kind of listen when I'm talking and when I read scripture, kind of go into a, a zone, do yourself a favor and reverse that. 
I make that same mistake. I'll be reading Philip Yancey and he'll come to a verse and Danny, I make a mistake. I skip over the verse and go to him because I think I already know what, that's a bad mistake. So listen, on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. Jesus goes with many people who don't recognize him. They didn't recognize him and he did not make himself going with them dependent upon their recognition. Anybody look back on your life and realize that you didn't recognize him but as Gary S. Paxton wrote back in the 70s, he was there all the time. He was there. He came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Tough scripture. Let's stop for a minute. Look at the text. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The way I read that my whole life was he put his hands over their eyes spiritually and wouldn't let them. Of course, they didn't know who he was because he kept them from knowing who he was. Anybody ever read it that way? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. King James Version. Their eyes were holden that they should not know him. New King James Version. Their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. New American Standard. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Anybody hear the intimation there that God's kind of doing something sovereign, keeping them? NIV, New International Version. They were kept from recognizing him. So far, looks like this may be a sovereign act of God. New Living Translation. For all of you that love different translations, New Living Translation. They really plow in and try to settle this. They didn't know who he was because God kept them from recognizing him. Anybody see what just happened? You see what the New Living Translators did? They didn't recognize him because God kept them. Oop, no big deal. They just slipped God in there, right? New Century Version. And that was not an advertisement against the New Living Translation, by the way. I use it all the time. It's a fair commentary, if not a fair translation. New Century Version, they were kept from recognizing him. I love that. They were kept from recognizing him. They back out of it. You want somebody to really back out? CEV, they didn't know who he was. The CEV guy just said, I'm not messing with that. No opinion on that. They didn't know who he was. Message, Eugene Peterson, great theologian, greater pastor, great teacher, big mentor from afar in my life. He gave us the message. Peterson does the same thing. A lot smarter than most of us in terms of the text. Peterson in the message says they were not able to recognize who he was. Now, I just want to tell you, if God kept them from recognizing Jesus, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. God has his reasons. There was a reason. I just know this. If God, if God was in charge of that JD, he had a reason. Anybody here ever gone incognito with your kids? Anybody here ever purposefully stood behind the curtain and not let them know, know you were there? Anybody here ever done? You had a reason, didn't you? 
There are good reasons sometimes to do this. He doesn't explain what those reasons are. We don't know if it was their tears and fear and their sadness that kept them or if it was God that sovereignly kept them. And that's why Peterson's smart and he said that's not, if he wanted us to know why he did it, he would have told us why he did it. The point is they didn't know who it was. And that's really important, the fact that they didn't know. Not why, but the fact that they didn't know who he was is incredibly important. And you see why in the response. Go back to the text, verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? I want to stop and I want to explain to you what the church tries to do in this process called spiritual formation. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the first Easter Sunday, Charlie, comes up to a couple of guys that he loves and he knows they love him. And their eyes don't see him and Jesus does not immediately say, fellas, it's me. Jesus knows that humans want epiphanies, but sometimes humans need a process. And Jesus held, that was good right there, I hope you didn't miss that. <laughs> Jesus held the epiphany, looked at them. You think he couldn't have said, guys. I mean, all he had to do was look at them. Their eyes were kept from seeing him. It's Easter, what's Easter about? Meeting the risen Lord, what's he gotta do? It's Easter, you don't know me. Touch my prince. You think, Mike, he couldn't have pulled back the robe and said, put your hand in here. But Clyde, the Bible says he looked at these guys and instead of saying, it's me, Jesus, he looked at them and he knew the best spiritual question. The best thing he could say to them was a question. He looked at them and instead of saying, it's me, he looked at them and said, what are you guys talking about? Terry Johnson leads a senior high boys life group in this church. And every week my friend Terry Johnson says, I don't know what I'm doing. They talk about the craziest stuff and I try to, Mike, they're doing your book. They're reading through your book. I try to get them in the book. He said, I think in eight weeks they still hadn't read the book and I can't get them to talk about the book. I get five minutes on the book and the rest of the time, I don't know what I'm doing. Stan Jr. comes home, and I want to tell you about it, not one of those six boys miss any week on Tuesday night, and every week, last week, Stan Jr. came home and he said, Dad, Mr. Terry is an incredible man, and we could not have a better life group, and we have gotten so close to him. I told Terry that this morning. Terry is a executive in human resources. He knows people. He feels like he's a failure with boys. He stood right here and I said, I want to tell you, my son told me that you're changing his life. And he stood there and he's, he looked at me and instead of saying thank you, he was like, I don't know how. And I said, because you come up to them and you don't cram a resurrected Jesus or a baptism or a salvation down their throat. You come up to these young boys whose bodies are racked with growing and their hormones and minds are twisted. You come up to them and instead of cramming doctrine down their throat, you follow Jesus and say, tell me about what you were talking about on the road. 
You see what Jesus did there? That's good spiritual formation. What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? To the extent that I talk about on Sunday what you are discussing with one another along the way of Monday through Saturday, I'm a faithful preacher to you. But if Sunday is just an esoteric bunch of jargon that has nothing to do with what you were talking about, Antonio, this week, then I'm not following Jesus. They stood still looking sad. Well, that's the moment he's gonna break down and say, I can't take it anymore. I don't want you to be sad. It's me, fellows. But Jesus did something we don't do in our pedagogy in the church too often. Jesus closed his mouth and he really meant it when he said, what are you talking about? And he let him talk. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know that? Have you not been reading the paper, fella? Jesus at that moment, man, if I'd have been Jesus at that moment, I mean, that's a perfect moment. You talk about an opportunity to be the world's greatest smart aleck. They say, are you, the, are you ignorant? Have you not read the paper? At that point, Jesus has the ability to say, who do you think you're talking to? Hold out his hand, pull back the robe, float a little bit, glow a little bit. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? And Jesus says, yes, I know what's going on. I actually happen to be God, and I was the one on the cross that's got up from a grave. No, Jesus looks at them, and he says, what things? And he'll drive you nuts. If you want a preacher who settles the whole process and starts with an epiphany, don't follow Jesus. If you want somebody to give you black and white, easy answers on the complex matters of life, don't follow Jesus. He just keeps throwing it back in your lap. He doesn't do many epiphanies, but he does a whole lot of process. Are you the only one who doesn't know these things? And Jesus says, what things? Chris, he looks at him and says, tell me about it. Because a lot happens in the process. They said the things about Jesus of Nazareth to Jesus, who was a prophet mighty indeed. He's thinking to himself, and God, and Messiah, but he doesn't say it. I mean, that's where he, you know, he says, they say the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed. That's where I would have said, prophet? You ever heard of a Messiah? How about second person in the Trinity, an eternal son? Let's get it all settled. Let's do people's spiritual work for them. Give them answers. All it is is just getting them to the end, memorizing the answers and knowing the right thing, getting their doctrine right, right? This is Eastertide. They said the things about this prophet named Jesus and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And those prints in his hands that were gonna redeem the whole world, when they said we thought this was he who would redeem Israel, instead of extending them, he just buried them deeper in his pockets, looked at them and said, keep talking. Keep talking. And Andreas, I told Terry, every time you wanna to get to the book and get to the chapter and get to the stuff, as long as they're talking, 
shut your mouth and just tell them, keep talking. Keep talking. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel and Jesus takes his thumb inside that robe and runs it across the print in his hand. His hand stuck inside, his finger presses against the print that spilled water and blood from his side, sacraments of a New Testament covenant. And he kept the robe closed. Easter tide. Yes, and besides all this, now the third day since these things took place, I want to circle back to women. I want to show you something that Jesus is trying to say about women. You remember what happened? He got up out of the grave. The women were there. The angel appeared to them, and immediately after the angel, Jesus appeared to them. Remember that? The women, after seeing Jesus, went and told the apostles, capital A, that they had seen Jesus, and the apostles looked at one another and said, wink, wink, and thought it was a silly tale. You know women are. Right? It's the text. They're telling Jesus now, Chris Hauser, they're telling Jesus now, Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women said, but we didn't see Jesus. Wait a minute. Don't miss this. Did anybody just notice that these guys didn't tell Jesus that the women said they had seen Jesus. Remember the story? He got up, sent angels, then he appeared to the women. The women told the guys. The guys are on the road and they say, we're so confused. This group of women went to the tomb and they, they, they said it was empty. Let's see. Empty, what else did they say? They said that they had seen a vision of angels. What else did they say? Oh, they said actually that they met the risen Christ. And these guys said, they said they saw a vision of angels and they looked at one another and they had this connection. They looked at one another like, ain't no sense in telling the last part. No sense in looking crazy like them. They didn't even tell Jesus that the women had said that he was alive. Jesus is saying something about how not just the world, but the church treats women. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I never noticed that. Jesus starts dealing with scripture before he even clarifies that it's him. How important is the biblical text? It's the second thing Jesus did after resurrecting and showing himself to the women. The second thing he did was he got with a couple of fellas and he didn't even go straight to an epiphany. He got the text and said, I need to show you something here. For all of you that don't know what to do with the text, Eastertide reminds us that a risen Christ got up out of the tomb, immediate from the tomb, after rising, after showing himself to the women, the first thing he did was he opened up the text 
And the scripture says that he began to explain from the scriptures everything about himself. I want you to notice what he didn't do. And it's a tendency that we have. This is an interdenominational church. A lot of you are running away from all the certainty and all the arguments of your denominations. And you're looking back and you're saying, this is such a confusing book. I don't know how to read it. I don't know what to do with it. But I want you to notice what Jesus did not do. He did not get up out of the grave and demean the Hebrew scriptures. By the way, we didn't have a New Testament book yet. He got the Old Testament text that many of you are scared of and say, I don't even know how to read that. It's awful. You read it and it just doesn't make any sense. Jesus got up out of the grave. He did not revise the text. He didn't censor the text. He didn't call the text. He didn't demean the text. He didn't look at them and say, listen, we've had this book like a noose around our neck for all these years. It's over now. I'm going to commission a new one. It's going to have 27 chapters. It's going to be a lot better than the 39, and we're going to get this thing all cleared up, right? He didn't do that. He didn't demean the Hebrew text. He didn't commission the writing of a new text. He got up out of the grave, and he opened the text, and the Bible doesn't say that he shoved it at them and said, here it is, read it. The Bible said he looked at them and he opened the scripture and he began to explain it and interpret it to them. And the message of Eastertide to the church, conservative, liberal, progressive, traditional, I despise those words because they do not communicate effectively. People ask me all the time, they say, are you a progressive theologian? No, I'm a Christian theologian and a part of Christian theology has always been progressiveness. There's never been a time in the history of the Christian church that the church wasn't reforming itself and revisiting the text. There's never been a time. Are you a traditional theologian? Yes, if I'm a Christian theologian, I am, because there's never been a time when we have not been rooted in the experience, the eyewitness reports of the living word of God that was manifest in Jesus. But when people ask me, do you believe in the authority of scripture? Yes, I do but I do not believe in the authority of your interpretation of scripture. Do you believe in the authority of my interpretation? Everybody nod your head yes. Stand up on, stand up on one foot, hop up and down and repeat after me. We are not a cult. We are, come on now. We are, I said, stand up, we are not a cult. I believe in the authority of scripture, but the reason you're still not where you were is because for some of you Baptists, it, it finally hit you. We got American Baptist, Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, General Baptist, Free Will Baptist, Primitive Baptist, and we got a bunch of people separated from one another arguing over the authority of their interpretation. Jesus didn't say, there it is, read it, it's easy. Jesus looked at them and said, we need to get back, we need to start over again, and he opened the text, and he didn't say, easy, read it. No, he had told them a few days before, you search the scriptures, and you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me, and you don't see me at all. Jesus didn't throw the text away, he came back to the text, and he said, this needs some explaining. This needs some interpreting. It needs some opening. People say, do you believe in the inspiration of scripture? Absolutely. 
do I believe, Lillian, in the inspiration of your interpretation of Scripture? Do I believe in the inspiration of the Church of God? Well, which one? Church of God of Cleveland, or the Church of God of Prophecy, or the Church of God of Anderson? Disciples of Christ, Christian Church, or Church of Christ? The non-fiddle playing ones or the instrumental ones? I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I don't believe in the inspiration of a solitary interpretation, whether that's a denomination or a person. People say, do you believe in the infallibility of Scripture? For all that are wondering the bullet points, yes, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. You know what infallible means? It means it won't fail you. I don't believe in the infallibility, Heath, of your interpretation of Scripture. Do you believe in the infallibility of mine? Nod your head, yes, I'm your pastor. If we're gonna run tight cult around here, you gotta say yes. Jesus got up out of the grave and he said, the miss is not in the scripture. Scripture is not inadequate. The miss is in our understanding, our interpretation of scripture. And instead of Jesus saying, we're gonna get rid of a text because we have tried this for 1400 years and it's not working. JD, he got up out of the grave and on the Easter Sunday, he opened up a text and said, we're not gonna get away from this. We're gonna get back to it and we're gonna begin the process of sitting with Jesus and interpreting the text. Is it infallible? Yeah, it won't fail you, but just like the products in your home that say down at the bottom, they have warranties. But the warranty says, warranted for its intended use only. And a lot of you have lost warranties because you didn't follow the directions. You got a good warranty on that lawnmower, but if you start using it to trim the tree, Home Depot's probably gonna take issue or John Deere with what you're doing with it. It is infallible if you use it properly, but it will fail you. You think, and I'm gonna close here and we'll pick up next week. You think Jesus didn't have a right to get up out of the grave and say, I'm done with this because it was the professionals at this that justified my torture. If anybody had a reason to get their nail-scarred hands and pull them away from a book and say, done, no. mess me up the last time. But he got up out of the grave and he said, this is still a precious medium through which I can speak. And he didn't throw it in the disciples' lap, but the first act of the resurrected Christ was to pull the scripture back into his own lap and gather a church around and say, let's start over and let's read this again. And the Bible said upon reflection, and I want you to understand our worship services. The Bible said upon reflection, the guys on the road to Emmaus, Kelly, they looked back that day and they said, when he did two things, we saw him. Remember the guys whose eyes couldn't see him, Ivy? They couldn't see him. Jesus did two things that caused them to see him. The Bible said the first thing he did before he even opened the text was he sat with them and as I said, he sits with people who don't know him. You know why he sits with people who don't know him? Because he knows them.
That's all that matters. He sat with people who didn't know him, Samantha, and the Bible said he sat down with them. This is why we do what we do in our worship services, and I hope you see it. And as they did not know him, he reached over and took bread. That's why the people who come over here on Saturday and fill the little cups up and get the bread ready, they pray coming in and they pray while they're doing it because it's holy work to take bread. Even Jacques, when you go down to the store and buy that loaf of bread, Leela, when you order those little wafers, pray all over that because it is a holy process to take bread. He took bread and they didn't know him. He blessed bread and they didn't know him. He broke the bread and he gave it to them. And something about the way his fingers touched their palm and they saw him. And that's why I got goosebumps running down both arms right now because I know I try as hard as I can and sometime people that I've been trying to reach for years sit in this room a million miles away and you people hold the bread up and you break it. And when that crack goes across this room, it shivers all the way down their soul. And the Bible says, secondly, they said, when he opened the scripture and opened our mind and began to interpret the scripture like we had never heard it, our hearts started burning inside of us. You want a picture of the church? The church is a church sitting at a table with an open book and a bunch of open hearts, minds brought to the table by the hurts and struggles of life. And in the middle of that table, there's a text that is an orderly account of the word that was lived out of God's heart. And all around that text are the crumbs of a sacrament called the Eucharist. That's the picture of the table we come to. And we come to that humbly with one another as Baptists and Catholics and Pentecostals and Presbyterians. And just in a small way at this church, we are modeling what's happening in the greater body of Christ as Jesus is leading us and guiding us. Not a new way, but he's doing the same thing he did 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 300 years ago and 700 years. He's coming with a church and he's opening up a text and he's saying, I'd like to, the Holy Spirit at the right time says, I'd like to talk to you about that slavery text one more time. And after 1800 years of seeing it one way, we gather around that table and he breaks some bread and he interprets the text and we say, oh my goodness. And we didn't revise it. We didn't change it. And we didn't censor it. We saw it. And that process has been happening ever since there's been a Christian church. And that process is going to continue. So for the next four weeks of Eastertide, I'm gonna finish this text and then I'm gonna show you some examples in the early church of how Jesus sat with them and changed their mind about a text. James, Peter, John, and Paul looked at one another and said, is the scripture authoritative? Yes. 
and the greatest apostles looked at one another and said, but your interpretation's not. And they were mad and they were angry and the Holy Spirit came into the room and Jesus interpreted the text and they changed. But the text didn't. And we'll take a week and show some examples in church history where we have done that phenomenally. And we'll then take some modern issues and look at them gather around the table with some crumbs sprinkled. We'll do that one on communion Sunday because we need the communion. We need the crumbs on the table to talk about our stuff. It's easy to talk about everybody else's. All the stuff that was settled back when, easy. Our stuff, hard. But the crumbs on the table will help us. That's where Jesus comes and that's what Eastertide is about. Jesus bringing us back and interpreting the text for us. Can you say amen? amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good day and thank you for these good people. Thank you, Lord, for coming into our midst and sitting at the table with us. Take us from this place. And for those that have been driven from Scripture by confusion, for those who have been angry at Scripture, for those who have wandered a long time, Come alongside them, Lord, in this Easter tide season on our way to Pentecost. Get that old dusty book that's been on the shelf for so long. If it's good enough for your lap, it's good enough for ours. Bring us back and show yourself in the breaking of bread and the opening of Scripture to us. May Grace Point be a place where the bread is broken, the word is opened, and Jesus is seen. Oh, Lord, make that true, even today, even now, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said amen. And if you really want to do this, Wednesday night, we gather around, and I can't remember Wednesday night, Lee, that we didn't sense the Holy Spirit with the Bible in his lap guiding us as we disagree, argue, and struggle, and he speaks. Amen? Wednesday night, come out. We'll do it. We're starting the New Testament this week. God bless you. Go in God's grace.